I thus address the world through the medium of the latest wonderful invention, so that my voice, like my great show, will reach future generations and be heard centuries after I have joined the great, and as I believe, happy majority. Welcome to Becoming Barnum, the journey to fame and fortune, a podcast presented by the Barnum Museum in Bridgeport, Connecticut, and based on their award-winning blog series. Support for this project is presented to the Barnum Museum from the City of Bridgeport American Rescue Plan Act Funds, Peoples United, a division of M&T Bank, and the Connecticut Humanities and National Endowment for the Humanities as part of the Federal American Rescue Plan Act. The Barnum Museum has a special treasure in its collection, a 750-page copybook of letters written by Phineas Taylor Barnum when he was traveling in Europe in the 1840s, introducing his young protege, General Tom Thumb, to high society and royalty, as well as millions of ordinary people. Barnum's lively letters to friends, family members, and business associates reveal him more completely as a person at times struggling mightily to make the three-year tour a success, all the while directing the management of his American museum from afar. They also offer insights into Barnum as a husband, father, and nephew, and as a mentor to the child actor-entertainer whose popularity resulted in their meteoric rise to fame and fortune. In his mid-30s at the time, Barnum proved himself a tireless go-getter, calculating risk-taker, and astute entrepreneur decades before his name was attracting crowds to the greatest show on earth. These letters offer a window into the hard-scrabble era of show business, revealing how Barnum went about acquiring, hiring, and commissioning attractions, and promoting his museum and the General Tom Thumb Tour in Europe. Join us as we travel back in time to learn, through Barnum's own words, about the real person behind the legendary P.T. Barnum. Tell me plainly what you think. Once in a while, we find remarks in the letters in P.T. Barnum's copybook that are quite disconcerting, sometimes heart-sinking. For instance, Barnum's proposed collaboration with artist George Catlin to bring Ojibwa people to Europe to be exhibited to royalty and the curious public gives us pause. Though not mentioned in Barnum's letter, research reveals that the Iowan people, who'd recently been brought to Europe by Catlin for the same purpose, had suffered multiple losses of family members who succumbed to disease, and they were largely denied the opportunity to mourn in the ways they were accustomed. The knowledge of tragedies that occurred only months earlier makes Barnum's proposal to bring another group of Native Americans to Europe seem even more insensitive and exploitative. This episode will share another uncomfortable truth about the showing of human beings as curiosities, as we learn directly from Barnum. This letter came up in the same November 1845 time frame as the letter with his proposal to Catlin, but it warrants a separate discussion as it concerns the exhibition of people with genetic abnormalities. To be sure, this topic is a difficult one, and not one we would hope to be discussing. 
While it is exciting to explore Barnum's family and business relationships in these letters and learn about his purchases of novelties for the American Museum, this series wouldn't be an honest sharing of the 1845 to 1846 copybook if we skipped over the hard stuff. We have, after all, embarked on a journey to discover the man P.T. Barnum as he was in his mid-30s, through his own words. Like most people, Barnum's thinking did evolve as he matured, and, of course, the times changed too, and in the 19th century, society changed more rapidly than ever before. It goes without saying that the attitudes people hold and the decisions they make are mainly influenced by the culture and time period in which they live, and Barnum was no different. But it can be hard to put aside our own 21st century perspectives as we try to understand the motives and behaviors of people who lived in a different time period. Keep in mind that even within our own lifetimes, we witness changing standards concerning what is acceptable and not acceptable in the treatment of and attitudes toward our fellow humans. As deplorable as the entertainment exploitation of Native American peoples was, some would argue that the adults did have a degree of choice or agency in their decision to embark on Catlin's and Barnum's European tours. Granted, it can also be argued that such decisions were made wholly or in part to escape the terrible living conditions that had been forced upon indigenous peoples who were forcibly moved to reservations far from their familiar territories and largely deprived of the means to follow traditional lifeways. In this episode, we will turn to considering a situation in which the human curiosity Barnum wanted to show had no agency whatsoever, no say at all in the matter of being exhibited. This person was an infant, or to be accurate, not one but two infants, and very young ones at that, just three months old. Frankly, Barnum's excitement about the money to be made showing these two French babies born with extreme physical differences was distressing to read. That said, the letters indicate that the baby's parents were unwilling to accept Barnum's offers, generous as he believed they were, and as persistent as he was. Perhaps most interesting from an historical viewpoint is that Barnum himself thought it would be a long shot to get the family under contract because he was competing with French physicians who were also willing to pay the parents, but in their case it was for the privilege of studying the infants. The family would likely have preferred to stay in France if they wanted to engage in any kind of medical curiosity exhibition or study of their baby at all, which we do not know, at least not yet. Nevertheless, Barnum crowed to his Boston showman friend Moses Kimball and his museum director Fortis Hitchcock about the thrill of his find, as well as his confidence that there were large sums of money to be made if he could hire the family. In fact, he was calculating not just to exhibit the infants for a few months, but throughout their childhood, expecting this might be a period of 10 to 16 years. The contrast between this situation and the relationship Barnum established with little person Charles Stratton, better known as General Tom Thumb, is striking. Charles was not quite five when he was introduced to Barnum, so he was of an age when the two could communicate. All went well, and Charles's barely scraping by parents promptly put their son under contract at the American Museum in New York. Mr. Stratton, it is said, had been embarrassed by his unusually tiny son, but here was a way that he could make money and become quite wealthy, as it turned out. 
He was not averse to publicly exhibiting his son even before the boy's talents were actually known. For his part, Charles was a bright and precocious child who took to acting and singing like a duck to water and was readily able to engage audiences of adults. To his credit, Barnum regularly increased the family's weekly salary as their son's success brought more and more visitors to the museum, and Charles, from all accounts, thrived in the world of entertainment under Barnum's tutelage. But exhibiting conjoined infants who are not performers and are simply presented as objects of curiosity is quite a different matter. Barnum introduces the subject to Moses Kimball in a letter he wrote from Paris on November 11th. I saw here two days ago, twice, the most stupendous curiosity the world ever produced, a living, healthy, pretty child with two perfect heads. It is three months old and eats with both heads. I can't yet succeed in getting it and am damnedly afraid I never can. Would it draw more than any living thing or not? What think you? By God, I think it would. The day before, Barnum had written to Hitchcock, I have seen twice within the last week the most stupendous curiosity which God ever permitted to exist, and which will make our fortunes in double-quick time if I can get it into the museum, of which, however, there is very little chance, and therefore there's no use to fret about it. I fear we shall never get it at all, for there are a dozen French doctors trying to hire it. In the copybook, Barnum drafted three proposals for what he would pay the family, crossing out the first and second ones. The third does not have an X through it, so presumably Barnum felt that one was satisfactory. The contract is worked out in French currency and begins with a gift of 500 francs and a note that the board, lodging, and traveling expenses of the parents, infants, plus one other child would be covered. The salary would start at 200 francs per month for the first six months and increase by 100 to 200 francs at six-month intervals. In year four, the family would receive 1,000 francs per month, and in year five, 1,200 francs per month. The next notation is not clear, but indicates raising the salary to 2,000 francs per month at some point. Figuring that at the age of majority, 16 years, the children would be receiving 24,000 francs per year, Barnum noted that he would have paid the family a total of 384,000 francs plus their living and traveling expenses. After working out his own calculations, Barnum asked Hitchcock for his advice on what the museum could afford. Now tell me what you think of this, for I may be mistaken in my opinion about it, which is that it would draw a cartload of silver every week. I have offered the parents $60 per month for first year, $100 per month for second year, $150 per month for third, $200 per month for fourth, $250 per month for fifth, and $400 per month for one or ten years following. Besides, I pay wages and expenses of parents from the word go. They laugh at the offer, although they are poor, and say they will not at present make me any offer. But I am going at them again. Now, suppose I gave $100 per week and all expenses for one year. Could we afford that for the museum? Could we afford more? There is no closing with this letter and the top lines on what seem to be the last page of the letter pick up mid-sentence on the subject of the baby's appearance. Curiously, that broken sentence follows what looks like a small, circular scribbling at the end of the prior page. A closer look reveals that the scribble is not a random mark, and that Barnum had sketched a tiny picture of the infants, and then nearly obliterated the image with ink. 
The partial description at the top of the next page reads, Lap, like two babies. They are fine and healthy looking. As they are uncovered and laying on their back, two little legs are seen dangling down, and upon turning them over, one more leg is found with seven or eight toes on it. He continued to Hitchcock. It does not strike me as an offensive sight. Tell me plainly what you think of it, so that if my notions are too high, I can curtail them before it is too late. Guido will, of course, say, touch it not, for it is a monstrosity. But we care not for that. We go for dollarstrosity. The child is a female, I was told, for I saw nothing, nor need the public, to indicate the sex. Here, think of it and write. Although Barnum refers to the baby in the singular, today she would be recognized as two girls, whose rare condition was a type of partial twinning called dicephalic parapagus, or parapagus dicephalus. Most such twins do not survive long after birth, and it is exceedingly rare for them to reach adulthood. Later on in Barnum's lifetime, Italian twins Giacomo and Giovanni Battista Tocci were born with this same condition and were exhibited until their twenties, though not by Barnum. The Tocci's lived unusually long lives, passing away in their early sixties in 1940. Over the years, Barnum's American Museum employed a number of people with notable physical differences, such as those who were extremely tall, large, thin, or small, and some of them, like giantess Anna Swan and her even taller husband, Captain Bates, became very well known. Others who were already famous were hired for short-term engagements. Today, many people associate the conjoined brothers Chang and Ang Bunker, the Siamese twins, with Barnum's Museum. But in fact, they had found their own way to fame and fortune starting in the 1830s, and with their wealth, chose to become plantation owners in North Carolina. In 1860, they did a stint at the American Museum, but otherwise they were only represented there by a wax likeness. Likewise, conjoined twins Millie and Christine McCoy, who were born into slavery in 1851 and promptly sold to a showman, then found by their parents several years later, were already famous when they contracted to perform in conjunction with Barnum's Circus in the 1870s. Known as the Carolina Nightingale, Millie and Christine also did what Charles Stratton had done years before, visit Queen Victoria and other European royals, establishing themselves as celebrity performers. We may never know what happened with the partially twinned girls Barnum saw in France, but these letters reveal that in that time period, there were many kinds of responses, ranging from curiosity, morbid fascination, and genuine medical interest to revulsion of a so-called monstrosity. That Barnum said he was competing with a dozen French doctors is illuminating, as it hints at changing attitudes based on science. In the 19th century, France was considered the leader in the study of medicine. Notably, it was the medical school thesis of a French physician, André Fay, born in 1884, that challenged long-held theories about people with physical deformities, such as the idea of monstrous births being a punishment from God. Fay believed that no matter how someone looked, he or she was fully human. His thesis was built in part on the earlier writings of French scientist and natural philosopher Étienne Geoffroy Saint-Hilaire, who lived from 1772 to 1844. In light of this, it is a relief to read that the parents of the infant girls were resisting Barnum's efforts to hire them, despite their need for money. 
This couple may have been unusual in feeling that their daughters should not be subjected to exhibition by showmen, in contrast to the Strattons, the Tauchis, and other parents like them, who were not averse to capitalizing on the distinctive bodies of their children, and showmen were eager to seize the opportunities. Those were different times indeed. Plans, good and bad. Our next installment brings us up to date on several stories we have been following, such as the novelties Barnum had shipped from Europe to feature at his American Museum for the holiday season, advice to the museum's naturalist, Monsieur Guillaudot, about stuffed birds and beasts, and the final decision of the parents, whose infant girls were born with a twinning abnormality, and whom Barnum wanted to exhibit. We'll start with this last one. Our previous installment presented a difficult story about Barnum's desire to exhibit infant girls, only three months old, who were born with dicephalic parapagus, a type of partial twinning that resulted in a shared torso with two heads. Barnum considered the baby so extraordinary that he proposed a long-term contract with the parents, exhibiting the girls until their age of majority at 16. His proposal was exceptionally generous, he felt, since the family would receive regular increases in their annual salary, plus have all their expenses paid. Elated, Barnum wrote to both Fortis Hitchcock at the museum and his showman friend Moses Kimball about his find in Paris, though he noted that he might not be successful in convincing the parents. If they did agree to exhibit their daughters, he thought it would likely be with a French physician who wished to study them. The copybook contains another letter to the parents, addressed just to the father, written on November 12th, only a day after Barnum had expressed his excitement to Hitchcock. The location noted on the heading of this letter raised suspicion, since it is not the same used on other letters written at the same time. The first sentence confirmed that this correspondence was meant to appear as if it came from an agent of Barnum's rather than himself. It occurred to Adrian St. Pierre, the curator of the Barnum Museum, that perhaps this was penned for Monsieur Pinta to send to the parents. Pinta, you may recall, acted as the interpreter, among various responsibilities, for General Tom Thumb's entourage, and they had just arrived in Paris from Lyon. The baby girl's parents were French, and since Barnum would need to communicate with them in their own language and keep his offer confidential, translation would likely fall on Monsieur Pinta. One can either view the letter as being wholly deceptive in hiding its authorship or interpret it as a model that Barnum provided Pinta in order to prepare a letter. The fact that there are insertions and crossouts and no closing line indicate that this letter was a draft. It begins, Dear Sir, I am very sorry to hear from Mr. Barnum that you have written him a letter saying that you do not accept his offer and that you also decline making him any proposition. I regret this for your sake as well as his, for I am certain that he is the best man in the world to take charge of the exhibition of your children, and as I know him to be a liberal man, I am sure he will do better by you than you can do in any other manner. Mr. Barnum is wealthy, and having been engaged for twenty years in the business of public exhibitions, he possesses the power and knowledge necessary to ensure success. He has been several times before King Louis-Philippe and the royal family, before the Queen of England, and is well acquainted with all the nobility and foreign ministers in Paris, London, and America. 
Adding more puffery to the description of Barnum and his influence, the letter continued. He is also acquainted with the directors of public journals and can use a greater influence towards getting permission from the police in different cities to exhibit than any other man you can find. Mr. Barnum is a generous and kind man, and he assures me positively that if you will arrange with him, he will use every exertion to make you and your family happy, and that you shall make more money with him than you can possibly make in any other way. Describing further inducements to signing on, the letter assured the father, Besides, he will manage the whole of it, so that you will have no trouble whatever, and wherever you go, he will employ a good female who speaks French and English to travel with you and assist your wife in taking care of the children. I am positive that it will be to your interest to see Mr. Barnum with your brother and talk with him before you make any other arrangements. Speculating that his protege, General Tom Thumb, might possibly influence the parents and cause them to change their minds, Barnum added, At Mr. Barnum's request, I enclose some tickets for visiting Tom Poos. He is anxious that your family and your brothers should call and see the little man, in order that you may judge of Mr. Barnum's capacity for conducting an exhibition. I hope to see you at the Salle Vivienne, and again repeat that I hope for your own interest you will see Mr. Barnum soon, and try to arrange with him to exhibit your children. That's the end of the letter, and possibly the end of that story. Two days later, on November 14th, Barnum wrote to Hitchcock that the General had commenced operations in Paris the day before. Barnum had engaged the Saloon Salle Vivienne for one month, paying 4,000 francs for it. Adding to the letter on the 16th, he noted that although the mail had just come in, there were no letters from America. Realizing there was a chance on the New York side that Hitchcock was receiving some but not all of his letters, Barnum often repeated the critical information, as he did in this one. In a couple of earlier letters, we learned about the mechanical trumpets he had acquired and was shipping on the St. Nicholas, as he had explained these were to replace the live musicians outside on the balcony of the American Museum. Although Barnum had initially mentioned automata in conjunction with trumpets, we later learned that these trumpets were not operated by automata figures, and that a boy would need to be hired and concealed in order to keep the trumpets playing. In this letter, we get a good description of the trumpet mechanism, which seems to be a type of organ. Barnum advised Hitchcock, I enclose directions in French for arranging the mechanical trumpets. I believe they are arranged very similar to an organ, the chief care being to play the tune out before changing it for another, and also, when you change, to have the notch at the end of the barrel snugly fit in its place. One barrel plays several tunes, the other plays one only, it being a long and splendid overture. I have been told that the organ makers in New York can make the barrels just as well as they can be made in Paris. If so, it will save expenses of transportation. After the instrument arrives, you can learn that fact and let me know. He was not confident that the trumpets would arrive in time for Christmas, though New Year seemed more certain, but suggested Hitchcock have a man on the lookout and he will be able, perhaps, to get it to the museum in time for Christmas. It sounds like a delay in unloading cargo, not the transatlantic journey, was the anticipated hiccup. Above all, Barnum instructed that when setting up the trumpets, don't let the public know that a boy turns it. Let them suppose it is wound up. The boy must practice a little so as to know how fast and how slow to turn it before he tries it on the balcony. Ambridge or any other musician can tell him how fast to turn it, 
after hearing the music played once. As far as the physioscope, a new kind of optical instrument Barnum had shipped from London, he advised that full directions for using it had also been sent. Englishman Professor Swift, who had been responsible for setting up Dissolving Views shows at the American Museum a few months before, was now tasked with setting up the physioscope in the museum's lecture hall, or theater. Barnum's wry comment that the instructions would be found in the box with the instrument, if he looks, suggests that Swift was not one for reading directions. Also on November 16th, Barnum penned a short letter to Monsieur Guillaudot, the man in charge of the natural history exhibits and the museum's taxidermist. Guillaudot had worked at the American Museum for many years, long before Barnum acquired it, and Barnum respected the elder man's advice and opinions. Barnum had agreed to deliver a few gifts to Guillaudot's sister while in the south of France, but apparently was unable to. He wrote to apologize and explain the circumstances that kept him from staying in Lyon for more than a couple of days, and that the nephew he hoped to meet, an art student, was away at the time. Continuing with business concerns, he instructed Guillaudot, I want you hereafter never to refuse any American bird or animal skin that you can buy for a low or fair price, for the only way to get good curiosities from the museums in France are by exchange. Eagle, owl, and other American bird skins, also moose, fox, buffalo, and other American beast skins, could be exchanged in Paris to good advantage. I once sent you a list of some animal skins for sale in London. You sent word to get some if they could be got at half the price. I have lost the list, but if you will send me a list of what bird and beast skins we want and the price, I'll try to get them in London. In fact, I shall be in Paris a few days in March next, unless I sail in February for England. Have you got any American skins now on hand to exchange? The last line in the letter refers to a plan Barnum had described to Hitchcock on August 28, 1845, for commissioning statues to be mounted on the roof of the American Museum. To Guillaudot, Barnum wrote, If Hitchcock has not yet sent me the height of the museum, please have him do so in order that I may know what height to have the statues which are to go on the top. With its corner location at a spacious intersection, the marble building was perfect for an attention-getting exterior, and Barnum had already done a lot of dressing up of the facades on Broadway and Ann Street. Barnum's August letter had asked Hitchcock to supply the height of the museum from the pavement to the top of the railing around the roof, above the eaves trough, so that a sculptor would be able to calculate the proportionate size for the figures to appear life-size. Barnum noted to his manager, When the museum was built, Guillaudot will tell you that it was intended to place statues or busts at certain intervals on the top. Not having received the measurements two months later, Barnum again asked Hitchcock in his October 25th letter. The statue plan does not seem to have come to fruition, however and sounds far more ambitious than practical, which Hitchcock's silence might have been hinting. A review of period images, both artistic and photographic, does not show statues on the roof, and the 1850 guidebook, Barnum's American Museum Illustrated, which describes the alterations and improvements of this magnificent establishment, makes no mention of such statues. Considering that they would have to be larger than life-size to show well on a five-story building, and the material would ideally be marble or other stone, one can only imagine the enormous expense that would be involved in having multiple statues made, 
shipped across the Atlantic and hoisted to the top of the museum. Hitchcock, who was a fastidious money manager, probably viewed the plan with trepidation. As remarkably tenacious as Barnum was in carrying out his vision for the museum and its attractions, the letters reveal that not every idea of his became a reality. Stay tuned. Thanks for listening to this episode of Becoming Barnum, The Journey to Fame and Fortune. This podcast was produced by the Barnum Museum. All episodes are based on the blog series Barnum's Letters from Abroad by Adrian St. Pierre, curator of the Barnum Museum. Editing and sound design are by Rui Pino and narration by William Saris. Kathleen Marr is our executive director and John Swing is our chief operations officer. Please visit our website at www.barnum-museum.org to learn more about the museum. Don't forget to connect with us on social media and visit the Barnum Museum's YouTube channel for behind-the-scenes presentations of our fascinating collections and more stories about the legendary showman. Please tune in next time as we continue our adventures in Europe with P.T. Barnum.